0: Go check out the Murderific Podcast. That's Murderific. Available today at the website Murderific.com, also on Podbean. The Murderific Podcast is just a girl from the scary state of Maine with a serious love of true crime. This podcast is about serial killers, mass murderers, family sides, and more. Stream today at Murderific.com. M-U-R-D-E-R-I-F-I-C. Murderific.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at murderific podcast. The Murderific Podcast at Murderific.com, also available on Podbean, executing podcasts one crime at a time. Go check it out now. The promo
1: you just heard was from Murderific. Go check it out. Uh, It's a fairly new podcast. Uh, Good shit. I highly suggest it. Go try it out. You guys know as well as I do, I'm a huge supporter of uh, newer and smaller podcasts because, hey, you know what? They got a lot of fucking great content that nobody recognizes, so... Go out there and check that shit out. Alright, a couple things before we get started real quick. One is the live show, July 28th at uh, 120 East Market Street, Indianapolis, Indiana. That is the location of Wave 1 Radio. We'll be in downtown Indy, live show. Tickets are $10, fucking dollars. that's it. You get three live episodes from me. Hillbilly Horror Stories and Shane Waters from Out of the Shadows. We'll all be there doing like meet and greets, Q&As. I know whoever's in the MC Nation group, we're going to fucking hit the town afterward too. We're going to tear that shit up. So uh, get some tickets. Come out and meet all of us. Hang out. Uh, It's going to be a great time. Three live episodes right there for $10. bucks. can not hardly beat it. Uh, You can find the link on all of our Facebook pages, or you can message us or email us for the link if you want to do it that way as well. I do have to thank some Patreon subscribers here. I'm a little bit behind, but I have a bunch of new ones here. So, Lisa, thank you. Missy, I got your shirt sent out, and you are entitled to a Skype call, so go ahead and message me. I think we're Facebook friends, so go ahead and message me, and we can set that up. Christine. You are also entitled to a Skype call, so hit me up. Let me know when you want to do that. Roxanna, you are also entitled to a Skype call once a month. Um, get a hold of me. We can set that up. Um, we have Alicia, Nicoletta, Edwin. Thank you all so fucking much for your pledges. I appreciate it more than you guys know. I put a lot, as you guys know, I put a lot of work into this, so it's fucking awesome that you guys, uh, support that. Thomas, my dude down in Florida, man. Good buddy of mine. I love that dude. Tara, Dana, and Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories are now supporters. Thank you guys so much. Uh, Lindsey Joe, thank you. And it looks like Shelly. Shelly, you are in that tier as well. So get a hold of me somehow. Email me. uh, Message me on Facebook. However you want to get a hold of me. And we can set up our uh, Skype call. So, Thank you all so much for the support. I greatly appreciate it. Steven, uh, you did the one-time donation to my PayPal for $30. Um, I have chosen your episode, and we will be doing that shortly. Um, And what that is, it's a live episode with me over Skype, and I uh, do the episode for you, and then we talk about it afterwards. So I picked a good one for you too, man. So so all of you, thank you so much. Uh, I love you guys, and I appreciate you
0: emergency, what are you reporting?
1: Yeah, uh, I I got a girl hung herself in the guest house of, uh, it's on Ocean Boulevard across from the hotel, same place that you came and got the kid yesterday. Okay, sir, what is the address? I'm not sure, uh, 19, I am in the back house is 1928 something. Uh, I'm not sure. Let me call you back. Okay,
0: sir, is she still alive? I don't know. Okay.
1: No, sir. I need the address. You came here yesterday to pick up a little boy. Okay, sir. I wasn't working yesterday. I don't know what you're talking about. the records. Sir, I checked all of the records yesterday. I can't find anything on Ocean Boulevard. Can you tell me what the address is? I look it. Just start sending them towards the the hotel. Okay, I understand that. I just need the exact address. I can't help you until I have the address. 1043 Ocean Bowl. 1043 Ocean? Okay, is she still alive? I don't think so. Okay, let me get get the fire department. Sir, hang on. Let me get the fire department on the phone to help you, okay? Hang on just a minute.
0: Come on. Fire, medical emergency.
1: with yeah. a transfer. Go ahead, sir. Okay. I the lady t- hung herself. What's the address? 1043 Ocean Boulevard. 1043 Ocean Boulevard? Yeah. Okay, what's wrong? She hung herself, man. She woke up. Okay, is it the house? It's house. Okay, how old is she? I'd say about 30. 30, okay. Where was the last time we saw her? Last night. Okay, it should be on health? I'm doing, I'm compressing your chest right now. Okay, hold on. What's your name? Adam Shackney. Okay, I have help on the way Okay. And Petey, you're on the way? Yes, we are. Okay, and you're right there with her? Did you cut her down? Yes, I did.
0: Okay, just stay with me. Wednesday, July 13th, 2011. Adam Shacknai walks into a scene of horror at the Spreckles Mansion.
1: Adam was the one who came out of the guest house sometime after
0: 6.30 and he saw Rebecca's body hanging from the balcony. He called 911. But by the time help does arrive, it's already too late. Rebecca Zahau is dead. Her boyfriend Jonah Shacknai is at the hospital where his son Max is in critical condition. He receives an urgent text from his brother Adam to call him.
1: And he told me that Rebecca had taken her life.
0: No woman would bind their feet with rope, bind their hands behind their
1: back, put a T-shirt around their neck, gag it in their mouth, and then jump over a balcony. Anybody that looks at this says this could not be a suicide. That's just impossible.
0: 32-year-old Rebecca Zahal was
1: found, found... Bound and hanging
0: from a balcony News of, of a historic- the bizarre death at the famous mansion spreads like wildfire. As soon as we heard there was... A dead body, a woman found
1: nude hanging off a balcony off the Spreckles Mansion. Oh my goodness, everybody was all over it. Six-year-old Max has died due to complications from a fall inside the home.
0: With two mysterious deaths in the same house in the space of a few days, the San Diego Sheriff's Department launches a full investigation.
1: The scene was uh, pretty suspicious. We are not ready to determine whether it was a suicide or a criminal ma- criminal act.
0: Hey MC Nationers and Dreamers, thank you so very much for joining us, and by us I mean Justin and I once again as we put our mics together for the third time to bring you this story, and it's a bizarre one out of Coronado, California. It's one you may have heard of before. It's a relatively popular story. But just in the last few weeks there has been an interesting development that might just change the way some of us look at this case. I have long been interested in this one, but because it's been covered before, I shied away. But because of the new developments, I felt like we could bring a new dimension for you guys. And you know, when I come across stories like these, the kind that challenge my thinking ones where I can't quite figure out what the heck happened, I immediately go running to Justin to see if he wants to look at the case with me so I can pick his brain about it. And you know, he's just come off his epic series on Jesse James for his listeners, and he's got some other collaborations going on as well. You may have seen him recently at his live show or at CrimeCon, so he is one busy guy. He's been such a pleasure to work with in the past with the other two mysteries we delved into, and I'm very fortunate that Justin has been able to squeeze in some time for us to help me try and figure out what happened in the days between July 11th and July 13th, 2011, in this third collaboration with Mysterious Circumstances and California Dreaming, The Deaths at Spreckles Mansion. So we are going to do this kind of like the way we've done it in the past. I'm going to give you all the background information about the case and provide you with as many details as I can. And as I go along, I'm going to be asking lots of questions because, you guys, there's a lot of them. And then I will turn this over to Justin, and it's going to be his job to try and find some plausible answers the various mysteries surrounding this case, and then it will be up to you listening to decide what you think most likely happened, if that is even possible. Let me set the backdrop for you. Our story today takes place in the very exclusive community of Coronado, California, and this isn't just any city. It's actually situated on what its residents like to think of as an island, and it kind of looks like that. It is technically a peninsula, but the roadway from the mainland of San Diego is so narrow as it leads up to the wider section that it kind of resembles an island, and it practically is one. It's just another one of those envy-making places in the world that you wish you lived on or at least vacationed on. It's this little chunk of paradise, a little bit north of the California-Mexico border, and it is on this island where Spreckles Mansion is located. And at the time our story takes place, the home belonged to a man by the name of Jonah Shacknai, who was 54 years old, and was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company called Medisus. He had been married and divorced twice, He had two older children from his first marriage to a woman named Kimberly and one six-year-old son named Max from his second marriage to a woman named Dina. The Speckles Mansion was Jonah's summer vacation home, and he had just arrived around Memorial Day with his girlfriend Rebecca Zahau, whom he had been dating since 2008. And if you go online and look at pictures of Rebecca, you will see that she is quite a stunningly beautiful woman. She was 32 at the time, and she was born in Burma, but she had previously lived in Nepal and Germany until her family immigrated to the United States in 2001, settling in St. Joseph, Missouri. In 2002, Rebecca married a man by the name of Neil Nalepa, who was a nursing student. They lived together, it seems, in the Phoenix-Scottsdale area of Arizona. Rebecca did stay married to Neil until 2011, although she did begin seeing Jonah in 2008 while she was still married. Neil was a nursing student, like I said, and Rebecca did work as an ophthalmolic technician. But I did find a little interesting tidbit about Rebecca's background. She was arrested in August of 2009 for shoplifting and would go on to plead guilty to stealing $1,000 worth of jewelry from a Macy's department store in Phoenix. Now, the reason why I find this incident somewhat strange is because it seems like an odd move for someone who appears to be gainfully employed is still married but dating a very, very wealthy CEO in Jonah Shackney. So... This leads me to believe that something else was going on beneath the surface with Rebecca. Could there be a deeper reason why Rebecca was compelled to exhibit these behaviors? Or is it just she simply wanted nice jewelry for free? I thought it was kind of weird, but maybe I'm overthinking it. What do you guys think? Anyway, Rebecca quit her job at the end of 2010 and it's been speculated that she did so in order to help provide care for Jonah's son Max while he was with him. Jonah and his ex-wife shared 50-50 custody of Max. Rebecca had no biological children of her own, but she did have a number of siblings, an older sister named Mary, a younger sister named Snowham, and a teenage sister named Zena. So as I told you, Jonah and Rebecca had arrived for their summer stay at his Spreckles Mansion during the Memorial Day weekend of 2011. And during the course of the summer, Jonah's children, as well as Rebecca's sister, would be visiting and staying at the mansion. Jonah's oldest children had arrived around Tuesday, June 28th, for their two-week visit with their dad. On Sunday, July 10th, Rebecca's youngest sister, 14-year-old Zena, arrived for her two-week visit at Sparkle's mansion. The next morning, Monday, July 11th, Jonah and Max drove his two older children to the airport for their flight to meet back up with their mom in Phoenix, Arizona. He then returned back to the mansion, dropped Max off to be left in the care of Rebecca, and remember, her younger sister Zena was there as well, and Jonah left, and either he walked or jogged To the gym in order to work out. Now, the events that happened next, much of the circumstances surrounding this have been brought under great scrutiny, and the truth of what really happened has been left up to a great deal of speculation and conjecture. At some time around 10 a.m. on that Monday morning of July 11th, Max fell over the second story banister landing apparently headfirst onto the floor of the foyer, taking a large chandelier that was hanging from the ceiling down with him. Rebecca was in one bathroom, and I'm assuming it was downstairs because in what I read it wasn't really specified, but it was followed up with the fact that Zena was in an upstairs bathroom taking a shower. Rebecca was the one who heard the crashing sounds coming from the foyer and came running to find Max lying on the floor surrounded by pieces of a shattered chandelier. Rebecca called out for Zena to dial 911 for emergency services, which she does. The call having been reported as coming in at 10:10 10, 10 a.m., while Rebecca immediately begins administering CPR. Rebecca would later report that she heard Max say or whisper or in some manner expel the word ocean in the moments before he went unconscious. And we will come back to that in a moment. First responders arrived at the home at approximately 10:12 a.m. They would later report that they observed Max to be on his back, which makes sense because Rebecca had been attempting CPR as they were being called. I don't know what position it was that she found his body in when she discovered him injured on the floor. First responders also observed a Razor scooter lying close to or resting up against Max's right leg. A soccer ball was also in the foyer area, and the family dog was sitting on the landing of the staircase. The dog's name is Ocean. They also observed a broken and shattered chandelier laying next to Max's left shoulder. At 10.24 a.m., Rebecca called Jonah, who was still at the gym and she informed him that Max had suffered a traumatic fall from the second floor. He was on foot, remember, so he ran back to the mansion just as paramedics were loading his son into the ambulance. Jonah got into his own vehicle and followed the ambulance to Sharp Coronado Emergency Department, arriving at 10.36 a.m. Due to the extensive nature of his injuries, it was necessary to transfer Max to a more specialized facility, so he was taken to Ratty Children's Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. Authorities then contacted Max's mom, Dina, and she was able to make her way to the children's hospital by 2 p.m. that afternoon. Back at the mansion, Rebecca and zena I would imagine they were completely distraught at this point, but it appears that all they could do was provide support and really just take care of the menial tasks that needed to be taken care of over the next couple days, as Max's family was about to descend upon Coronado, California. Zina, while attempting to pick up the pieces of the broken chandelier, accidentally cut herself on the leg on some glass. So an officer, who was still there at the scene investigating the fall, drove Zina and Rebecca to the hospital so she could have her wound treated, which required four stitches. Later that same day, Rebecca was tasked with picking up Max's aunt, his mother's twin sister, Nina, from the airport. A friend of Jonah's named Howard Luber also arrived the same day to lend support to his friend. Jonah stopped back in at the mansion sometime in the early evening to shower and get some clothes to bring with him to the hospital. Max was still alive, but unconscious, still in the ICU. Zena stayed the night with Rebecca at the mansion. Jonah, who did not want to be too far away from Max, stayed the night at a nearby hotel, checking in sometime after 2 in the morning the next day, Tuesday, July twelfth. I'm certain this man did not get any sleep at all, as he was back at the hospital a little more than 3 hours later. Rebecca made arrangements for Ocean, their 14-month-old Weimaraner, to be kenneled that morning of the 12th while the family was dealing with this tragedy. Max's mom, Dina, who had been at the hospital for more than 12 hours, left shortly after Jonah showed back up to relieve her, and spent most of Tuesday resting at home. Meanwhile, Rebecca arranged for Zena to fly back home to Missouri in the wake of Max's accident, cutting her two-week stay short, which obviously makes sense. This would be a terrible time to have to entertain guests, especially a teenager, Rebecca took Zena to the airport, and on that same trip there, she picked up Adam Shacknai, Jonah's brother, who had flown into town to also lend support. At approximately 6 p.m. the afternoon of July 12th, Rebecca and Adam picked up Jonah and his friend Howard from the Children's Hospital, and they took Howard to the airport so he could fly home. Following this, Jonah, Rebecca, and Adam went to dinner. Now, here is kind of a big discrepancy, and I don't know what it means, if anything. But Jonah reported to investigators that his ex-wife, Dina, Max's mom, arrived back at the hospital at 6 p.m. that afternoon, and that's the time that he left with Rebecca, Howard, and Adam to go take Howard to the airport and to go grab a bite to eat. But Dina reported to investigators that she arrived back at the hospital at 8 p.m., Now, I do not think Jonah would be willing to leave his son's side without his mom being present, so somebody's timing is off. Could it be that everyone is in a heightened state of emotion at this time and their recollections are mistaken? Sure. And maybe I'm making more of this than there really is to be made of it, but still, it kind of strikes me as a weird discrepancy. It could be, perhaps, that both parties were giving ballpark times to investigators, and they were just left with this gap. It doesn't really seem like anything untoward occurred in that window of two hours. At 7.09 p.m., Rebecca received an incoming call from the urgent care inquiring as to the condition of Zena's leg wound. At 7.34 p.m., Rebecca made a call to Jonah's phone that lasted only one minute. Then at 7.39 p.m., Rebecca's phone received an incoming call from Adam's phone that lasted one minute. Jonah returned to the hospital after having dinner with Rebecca and Adam at approximately 8 p.m. So based on the phone activity, we know that Rebecca is no longer with Jonah and Adam by at least 7.30 p.m. that evening of the 12th because of those calls made from and to her phone. Jonah returned to the hospital at approximately 8 p.m. and reported that Dina was still there. Don't forget that discrepancy in their two statements. She said she got there at 8. Jonah said she got there at 6 when he left to go take Howard to the airport and have dinner with Rebecca and Adam. Around the same time, it is believed that both Rebecca and Adam returned to the Sparkles' mansion. I do not know if they arrived together or separately. I assumed together, since Rebecca had picked him up from the airport and they'd been using that one car. A few minutes after arriving home, at 8.06 p.m., Rebecca made a 27-minute outgoing call to her sister, Mary. That call ended at 8.33 p.m., but Mary called back immediately for three more minutes. Perhaps the call dropped, or maybe she forgot to tell Rebecca something at eight forty one pm two text messages were sent from Rebecca's phone to Jonah's phone at eight forty three pm Rebecca's phone received a text message back from Jonah's phone I would presume Rebecca is checking up on Max's condition and Jonah is providing her with an update at nine twenty five pm there was one outgoing call from Rebecca's phone again to her sister Mary between nine forty pm and 9.53pm, there is a text message exchange between Rebecca and Mary that consists of eight messages in total. At 10.41pm, Rebecca's phone received a text message from Max's aunt Nina asking if she can come by and talk to her about Max's accident. Rebecca would never answer this text message. At 11.30pm, there was a report from an anonymous source or sources that claim to have heard someone calling for help from the vicinity of the Spreckles Mansion. If this is true, then it has been speculated that something was happening inside the home, and someone is screaming for help. But the source is anonymous, and this cannot be confirmed. It's also been reported that around this time, loud music can be heard coming from the Spreckles Mansion, although this, too, cannot be confirmed. Early the next morning, at 12.30am, on Wednesday, July 13th, Jonah has reported that he called Rebecca's phone and she did not answer, so he left a voicemail that Max was not going to recover from his injuries, and it was only a matter of time before he'd pass away. At 12.50am, that voicemail was deleted. Okay, let's stop here for a moment. I need to talk about this voicemail. The contents of the voicemail, its audio, was never able to be recovered, so what was actually said can never be confirmed. All we have is Jonah's account of what he said on the message. But here's what gets me. Rebecca was home, awaiting to hear word about Max, purportedly, but she missed the phone call. I would assume Rebecca would be waiting by her phone to hear news and get updates about Max's condition, right? But she missed this call, or she did not answer it. That happens. But if I were to miss a phone call that I knew I was waiting to receive, would I have even bothered going to the voicemail and deleting it? Probably not. I most likely would have called back as soon as I realized I missed the call, especially in a situation like Rebecca was in, waiting for news about something so serious. But then the voicemail was deleted 20 minutes later, and there's no record of a phone call being placed returning that missed call, just that the message was deleted. So this has me wondering a couple of things. Did Rebecca ever listen to the message? And is it possible that the message wasn't just an update, but perhaps it might have been an angry Jonah telling Rebecca that his son's going to die and that he held her responsible for it? And upon hearing this message, Rebecca became distraught and deleted it? And what was going on in the 20 minutes between the time the voicemail was left and the time that it was deleted? Where was Rebecca between 1230 and 1250 am at 1 a.m Jonah went to stay at the Ronald McDonald house adjacent to the Children's Hospital during this evening of July 12th going into the 13th Rebecca was reported to have been in the main house of the mansion and Adam was staying in the guest house which is separated by a courtyard at the back according to Adam. He woke up at approximately 6.30 a.m. and he said he was going to walk over to the main house. This kind of bugs me. I'm not really sure why, but why is he going over to the main house right after he woke up? He has a guest house with all the facilities he needs there, so why? Maybe he was looking for food and didn't have any in the guest pantry? I don't know, but this bothers me and I don't see any good reason for him to head over to the main house. The only other person there is Rebecca. Maybe he wanted to use the car to head over to the children's hospital? I don't know. When he entered into the area of the courtyard in the back, that is when he discovered Rebecca hanging from a second-story balcony that overlooks the backyard. This balcony is not a large one and you can see pictures of it online. The railing is metal, or maybe wrought iron, and it's the width of maybe the size of perhaps a set of French doors, maybe four or five feet wide or so. It's not a substantially sized balcony. Adam reported that when he saw her hanging there, he ran into the kitchen of the main house and grabbed a kitchen knife and cut her down with it. He pulled a patio table underneath her and stood on it in order to be able to reach the point to cut the rope. I assume he had to saw at the rope, putting some effort into it. You can also see pictures of this rope, and it looks like it's red, nylon, synthetic fiber rope. It's used for boating sport activities, such as water skiing. Now, I have never cut rope with a knife, so... I don't know how difficult or easy it is to do. But the rope is pretty thick. I'd say about a quarter of an inch or so. Like I said, you can Google it and you'll be able to see some pretty graphic pictures of Rebecca. But they aren't too bad. I did take a look this time because I really needed to see how this rope was tied up around everything. And I'll get into that in a little bit. So Adam cut Rebecca down. He said that there was a shirt covering her mouth, so he proceeded to remove that in an attempt to perform CPR. At this point, Adam was on the phone with 911. That phone call was made at 6:48 a.m. He repeatedly told the operator that there is a girl that hung herself. These are his words. He's saying that she hung herself. You can hear the audio of the 911 call on YouTube but it's really frustrating to listen to because he gets one of those super annoying 911 operators who keeps telling him that she can't help him until he comes up with an address. He's visiting a mansion on Coronado Island. How is he supposed to know the address? He doesn't live there. He tried telling the 911 operator that it's the same house from two days earlier that picked up the little boy And she kept saying, I can't help you. I don't know that 911 call. He asked her to look it up and she's like, I can't. I have no records, blah, blah, blah. It's so annoying. During the call, Adam sounds distressed. He's breathing heavy. As I think he's trying to find the house number since he knows the street. But this also causes him to have to abandon his CPR attempts too but I do think he returns to it once he finds the house number and provides that information to the operator. Coronado police quickly arrived at the scene, finding Rebecca was not breathing and had no pulse, and they too began administering CPR. The fire department paramedics arrived at 6.54 a.m. and found Rebecca to be cold to the touch, with rigor having already been present in her jaw thereby pronouncing Rebecca dead at the scene. Coronado police quickly decided that they were ill-equipped to investigate a suspicious death such as this, so they contacted investigators from nearby San Diego County. The county medical examiner was contacted at 8.09 a.m., and the San Diego County Sheriff's Department arrived at the scene at approximately 9.20 a.m. Okay. Okay. All of this bothers me to no end. How in the world is it taking the San Diego Sheriff's Department almost three hours to get there? That right there leads me to think that they were not treating Rebecca's case with any level of urgency. And if I were to guess, I bet they heard the words, quote, hanging from a balcony, unquote, and assumed it was a suicide, and thus her death became less urgent for them. If and I'm only saying if for right now. If this was a homicide, I would hope they would have been there in a timelier manner. The Coronado police felt strongly enough that something was amiss at the scene that they needed to contact a department that had more resources and expertise in investigating suspicious deaths. But the sheriff took their sweet time heading over to the Sparkles' mansion. Okay. At 6.48 a.m., Jonah received a text message from Adam. You know, just to let him know that his girlfriend hanged herself. Yeah, no big whoop, right? Just shoot the guy a casual text? What? Really? You're going to text your brother this news? What do you guys make of this? It's weird, right? Well, hold on. Both the text... And the 911 call happened at 6.48 a.m. So I'm thinking that maybe he shot the text to his brother first and then called 911 because once he was on the phone, he wouldn't have been able to text him. And he just wanted to get word to his brother the quickest way possible. Okay, Adam Shacknai, you get a pass on this one. At approximately 7 a.m., Jonah, who was at the Ronald McDonald house, called Dina, who was with Max at his bedside, to inform her that Rebecca killed herself. He then made his way over to the hospital shortly thereafter to be at Max's bedside, too. Jonah made a phone call to Rebecca's sister, Mary, but managed to get a hold of her husband, Doug, instead, to give them the news that Rebecca killed herself. Now, this is what's being reported. This is what Jonah is telling people. That Rebecca killed herself, not that she was found hanging. So I'm assuming that his is the conclusion that he's jumped to based on the circumstances of her being found hanged, which is completely understandable. I think I would assume the same thing as well. Hanging is not an uncommon method of suicide. However, it is worth mentioning that it is less common for women to hang themselves. So that same day, July 13th, Jonah's brother Adam was interviewed by San Diego detectives. He also submitted to a polygraph examination, but the examiner stated that he was unable to draw any conclusions from Adam's test results. The polygraph examiner recommended that Adam be given a second test, but he was never requested to do so by the San Diego Sheriff's Office to come in for a follow-up examination. Dina and Jonah are also interviewed by detectives, as well as special agents from the Department of Justice. Also on the thirteenth, an attorney by the name of Paul, Finkst arrived at the Sparkles Mansion. He wouldn't reveal to the media who he was there representing, but he did say it was not Jonah Shacknai. On July thirteenth at seven fifteen p.m., thirteen hours after Rebecca was discovered hanging in the backyard the medical examiner finally arrived at the home. Thirteen hours. That seems like an awfully long time for the Emmy to get there, but okay. On July 14th, an autopsy was performed on Rebecca and it was also on this day that Jonah is told that Max's condition has worsened and is most likely he's not going to live. On July 16th, Max was pronounced brain dead and passed away. His parents authorized organ donation and procurement, and three children would go on to become recipients of Max's organs. And when all was said and done, Max's death was ruled an accident, and Rebecca's death was ruled a suicide. However, both of these findings have been called into question. Let's talk about Max first. It's been argued that Max's injuries were not consistent with an accidental fall. Max's autopsy revealed that he had bruises on his forehead and in the right periorbital region around his eyes. He had a linear frontal skull fracture. These patterns of injuries were consistent with the face-first impact on the floor resulting from the fall. This caused his skull to fracture and the hyperextension of the neck or the bending of his head backwards, and this subsequently caused the injury to Max's spinal cord. A spinal cord injury such as the one Max had can cause cessation of heart activity and or breathing, which would explain Max's loss of blood flow and oxygen at the time of his fall. The time that elapsed between the fall and the time that his pulse started back up was approximately 25 to 30 minutes. It was during this time when Max was without blood flow and oxygen that irreversible damage was done to his brain ultimately leading to his death five days after this fall. The summary of his autopsy found that he suffered blunt force trauma to the head and neck, cervical spinal cord contusions, and two skull fractures. And based on what was observed at the scene of the fall, and based on Max's injuries, his death was ruled accidental. Max's mother, however was not satisfied with the results of the San Diego County Medical Examiner and hired a new team to look into her son's death. And they found that there were some injuries that Max had suffered that could not be explained by the fall, including those injuries on his face, shoulder, and neck. The doctors Max's mom hired believed that Max was beaten before being forced or pushed over the balcony railing or he jumped over the railing to escape an attack and believes that the manner of death was not accidental, but homicide. So, what are we supposed to believe? There were only two other people in the house with Max at the time he fell over that banister, Rebecca and her sister Zena. So the insinuation is either that one or both of them beat Max about the head and somehow caused him to go over the banister? By all accounts, Rebecca was quite fond of Max, and there had not been any reported issues between the two of them in the past. So, does this beating of Max make any sense? Anything can go on behind closed doors, I suppose. But the beating of the six-year-old and tossing him over the banister, did Rebecca really become that unhinged? Based on what we know about the scene, the chandelier, the Razor Scooter having gone down with Max, which scenario makes the most sense? Accident? Or something more nefarious? And so this would lead us into the bizarre death of Rebecca, the details of which are really some of the strangest things I've ever heard. She was discovered hanging from the second floor balcony from a red rope. It was tied to the foot of the bed in the bedroom, leading to the balcony, and went over the railing. Investigators said that they found Rebecca's toe and heel print in the dirt on the balcony. There was also a man's boot print, but that was determined to be left by a detective. Rebecca's feet were bound by the ankles, and her hands were tied behind her back with the rope. The rope was wrapped several times around in a figure eight kind of a way, with some relatively intricate knots. Some have said that the knots look like they've been made by someone with knowledge of nautical type knots used in boating or maybe what you learn when you're in the Navy. And this was a key point in the case, because lo and behold, Adam Shacknai by trade is the captain of a tugboat. But then others would look at the knots and say, no, those are not nautical knots. So there's that. And beyond that, what I feel is the most important question, could these knots be tied in this way by Rebecca herself? Did she tie the rope to the bed, which if you look at pictures, is just kind of looped around once one of the feet of the bed and extends from there out onto the balcony over the railing. Could she have tied her ankles together, and then tied her hands together behind her back, and then throw herself over the balcony? And what about the bed? When Rebecca went over the railing, how far should the bed have jerked forward? Based on the measurements law enforcement took, the left-hand corner of the bed leg, the one which the rope was tied to, shifted seven and a half inches from its original location, which can be marked by the indentation it had left in the carpet from its previous position. At the foot of the bed, investigators noted that the left side of the bed shifted outward and to the right. If Rebecca's body weight pulled on the bed, there might have been a kind of drag pattern in the carpet, but no such drag impression could be seen. One reason for this may be that due to the rope having been higher than the bed as it leads over the railing, that combined with a quick jerk of a fall could have caused the left side of the bed to lift off the carpet as it shifted before coming to a rest where it was eventually found, or maybe someone lifted the bed off the carpet, shifting it several inches to where it was discovered in an effort to make it look like the bed had shifted. It was also noted that the right side of the bed, where the leg of the bed had rested and not shifted at all, it remained stationary in its original position, but a sudden jerk of a body falling over the railing, even though the rope was tied to the left, should have shifted the right side as well. It's been suggested that because the left side of the bed shifted and the right side did not, that this is an indication of crime scene staging in order to throw off an investigation. So a San Diego news station staged some reenactments of the theory that Rebecca went over the balcony on her own. They were interested in this very aspect of the scene. How far should the bed have moved? Now this reenactment has hugely been criticized for being super non-scientific, but it still kind of had me thinking about the physics of it all. We know how much the bed actually shifted, but is there a chance that it should have shifted more if the suicide over the balcony did happen? The reenactment is considered to be non-scientific because it was conducted at a different location and all of the conditions inside the mansion cannot be replicated precisely as it were at the Spreckles Mansion. However, it was based on information given about the scene by the Sheriff's Department. They used a 100-pound or 45-kilogram punching bag, which is what Rebecca weighed, to take her place in recreating what happened. The same type of rope was used to tie the punching bag to one foot of the bed, just as it was shown in the crime scene photos. Those putting together this reenactment got in contact with the manufacturer of the bed frame that the rope was tied to, and he was able to provide the specifics regarding the weight of the frame without a mattress which was 151 pounds, or 68.5 kilograms. A similar bed frame was borrowed, although it did not quite weigh as much as the one at the Spreckles Mansion, so they added weight to the frame to bring it close to the same weight. And then they added an average weight box spring and mattress, which in all brought the total weight of the bed to 299 pounds, or 135 kilograms. The reenactment was actually staged at the home of the doggy day camp that took care of Ocean, Jonah and Rebecca's Weimariner that got picked up the next day after Max's fall. So remember, the bed, according to the measurements in the crime scene, moved approximately seven and a half inches. So, according to the sheriff who ruled Rebecca's death a suicide, that this is how far the bed moved when she jumped or threw herself off the balcony. Seven and a half inches. That was it. Two test drops were conducted with the bed weighing the 299 pounds. The second one was done from higher up. 100 pounds of weight was added to the bed in case the mattress and box spring were heavier than the ones that they had. In the autopsy report, it showed that Rebecca had dropped 9 feet 2 inches off the balcony. Because of height limitations, the test was only able to use a 7-foot rope. However, they did drop the punching bag from 2 feet above the height of the balcony. Now, I don't want to get into the minutiae of all these test results, but after their testing, varying the distance of the drop and the weight of the bed, the least amount that the bed moved was 12 inches, and the most it moved With 399 pounds total weight on the bed and a nine-foot drop of the 100-pound punching bag, the bed moved 37 and a half inches. Now, the sheriff's department completely blew off their test results because they just could not replicate the exact same conditions as they were the night Rebecca was hanged from that balcony, which I totally agree with. But because the results were so drastically different, it seems like the small variables in the two different scenes shouldn't have made such a big difference in the two distances that the beds moved. And I also kind of agree with that. I kind of do think that if Rebecca jumped off the balcony and dropped nine feet, that the bed should have moved more than seven and a half inches. But that's just my personal opinion. I'm not an expert. And you know what else? Rebecca's neck wasn't broken. And I'm going to just try to leave this up to Justin to talk about in his theories. But it's kind of been my understanding that when a person is hanged, that there is a formula that is applied when it comes to the distance of the drop versus the weight of the person. So, what does this mean for Rebecca? She was a hundred pounds, and she supposedly dropped nine feet, but her neck didn't break. But the bed did give way, but it only gave way seven and a half inches. Should her neck have been broken? Or, from that height of a drop, should she have been decapitated as she threw herself over? Let's take a look at her autopsy and see if her injuries line up with the hanging. The summary of the official county medical examiner's autopsy says, Long drop of 9 feet, hanging from small second floor balcony with corresponding ligature furrow around the neck, which means she has a groove left by the rope in her neck that resulted from the hanging. She had bilateral, periorbital, conjunctival, and oral petechiae, which is the small broken vessels that result from the pressure of the rope being around her neck. Rebecca had fractures of the left arm of the hyoid bone in the neck. She had scattered abrasions and contusions of her neck, arms, and legs, and her hands and feet were bound. Rebecca's wrists and feet were bound with the same rope that she was found hanging from, which had apparently been cut into three separate pieces. Her right hand could have been removed fairly easily from the binding simply by slipping the hand from the rope. It was demonstrated that the wrist bindings could have been assembled by Rebecca in the front of her body with one of her hands being removed and then placed back in the binding with her hands behind her back. So the fact that this is part of the official autopsy is essential in explaining how Rebecca could have done all of this to herself. Tied the rope to the bed, bound her feet, bound her hands in front of herself, slipped her right hand out of the bindings, placed her hands behind her back, and repositioned her hand back into the rope, and then somehow propelled herself over the balcony. The scattered superficial abrasions on her back and legs appeared to be consistent with impact with large plants under the balcony. What they're saying is, when Rebecca flung over the balcony and she came down, her body swung into some nearby plants, which caused these abrasions on her back and legs. There were no other internal injuries, and toxicological testing found no alcohol, medications, or illicit drugs in her system. There's also been much made about the dirt found on the soles of Rebecca's feet, which is noted in the autopsy. Why would Rebecca's feet have dirt on them? Some have gone so far as to say her feet were caked with mud. If Rebecca was in her room plotting her suicide, why is there dirt on her feet? And why does it seem that there is no evidence of her having walked through dirt found on the carpet in the room? It appeared that the dirt is more than what would be found on the balcony that she went over. So, how is this explained? Some have said that she maybe got the dirt on her feet while traipsing through the garage looking for the rope. But that's just a guess. At what point would this dirt have ended up on the bottom of her feet? Between her being in the bedroom and her being found hanging from the balcony. Because the circumstances of Rebecca's death were unusual, they were initially considered suspicious. However, unusual circumstances do not automatically make a death a homicide, and homicides and suicides can often have similar features. Most people that commit suicide do not leave suicide notes and many people who commit suicide do not have a history of documented depression, which it has been said that Rebecca had no documented history of such. Suicidal hangings in which bindings are used are rare, but well described, and it is demonstrated in this case that Rebecca could have set up the bindings by herself. Despite no history of depression, She was found the morning after she apparently learned that her boyfriend's son, who was under her care when his fall occurred, would likely not survive. The distance from the balcony railing to the knot on the ligature, the distance of the drop, with the tension applied, was 9 feet 2 inches, which would have placed her feet approximately just over 2 feet above the ground. The distribution and number of injuries on and within the neck and the atypical nature of the furrow are consistent with the drop from that height, especially if she reached the full extent of the rope at somewhat of an angle. The relatively well-preserved bare footprints on the balcony and the lack of signs of a struggle or other footprints on the balcony indicate that she went over the balcony on her own. Also, there was no evidence that the decedent was bound against her will and there was no sign of a physical struggle at the scene or on her body, and there was no toxicological evidence that she was sedated. Finally, in addition to the factors just outlined, a complete and thorough investigation by the San Diego Sheriff's Office found no clear evidence to support that this death was a homicide. Therefore, based on these findings and the history and circumstances of the death currently known, The cause of death is certified as hanging, and the manner of death is certified as suicide. Signed by the Deputy Medical Examiner. There are a lot of details in regards to the findings on Rebecca's body, and I will get to more of that stuff in a bit. But first, guess what? Rebecca was exhumed four months later, and this time, Dr. Phil was involved so you know the pot's getting stirred. The autopsy results were released on the Dr. Phil show. So they dug up Rebecca from where she was buried in St. Joseph, Missouri, and flew her out to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to have her autopsied, again this time, by renowned yet controversial forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Weck. Where have we heard of Dr. Weck before? Well, he's one of those doctors that's an overachiever because he's also an attorney and a politician. In his career, he's performed more than 14,000 autopsies, and he's consulted on some pretty high-profile cases, including John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, Sharon Tate, Elvis Presley, Anna Nicole and Daniel Smith, Lacey Peterson, and John Binet Ramsey. So add to his list Rebecca Zaha. The reason why Dr. Wecht is controversial is because, one, he's openly disputed Elvis's cause of death having been caused by coronary heart disease whereas Dr. Wecht would say he believes Elvis was killed by a lethal cocktail of prescription drugs. And secondly, in his book about JonBenet Ramsey, he postulated that her death was caused by a sex game committed by her father. So, the Zayhaus wanted him to take a second look at Rebecca's death. And in his conclusion, he said that he leans very strongly towards her death being a homicide something that involved foul play, and he leans very strongly against it being a suicide. He indicated that he believes Rebecca's neck should have been broken if she suffered a nine-foot drop off that balcony, stating, I believe that if the body had just plummeted down that sheer drop of several feet, then the cervical vertebrae would have been fractured or dislocated, separated from one another or from the base of the skull. Dr. Weck also looked at four head injuries that did not break the skin, but did cause bleeding beneath the scalp. The San Diego medical examiner said that those injuries were relatively minor, likely having been caused by hitting her head on the balcony on the way down, but Dr. Weck didn't see it that way. He pointed out that these were blunt force trauma and that the head was impacted four times in a round, blunt force kind of a way. What's more, he said, I would like to hear how you get four separate impacts on the top of the head in a vertical hanging. He also went on to say that the types of impacts that she suffered could very well lead to a concussion as well as temporary unconsciousness. Dr. Phil also said that Dr. Weck told him that if Rebecca would have fallen that distance, she should have been decapitated due to the force and it was his opinion that the case needed to be reopened and that there was no way Rebecca's death was a suicide. So what did the San Diego Sheriff have to say about Dr. Phil and Dr. Weck's conclusions? Basically that nothing new was found and the case remains concluded. And if they had any new evidence to share that might be relevant to the investigation, the Sheriff's Department would be happy to meet with them as opposed to hearing the results on television put out there for pure entertainment. The sheriff also accused those who appeared on the show to have grossly misrepresented and left out a lot of the details regarding this case. He cited a couple of examples, too. One of the guests on Dr. Phil's show said that there was a mixture of DNA under Rebecca's nails. But what they didn't point out is that 13 samples were taken from both hands and each of them were examined independently. Twelve of the samples of DNA were from one person, Rebecca. One of the samples indicated that there was DNA from at least two people, the majority of it being from Rebecca again, and the other contributor was unidentified. And I'm assuming that they tested everyone Rebecca came into contact with in the days and hours prior to her death. On Dr. Phil, a guest had said that someone had logged into Rebecca's computer purportedly after she had been dead already. What they didn't mention was that it was determined by experts that this was actually an automatic update that generated the activity on her computer. The sheriff further said that Dr. Weck did not contact the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office or the sheriff's to have them attend the second autopsy which is apparently normal protocol in order to maintain the chain of custody in the event new evidence is discovered. In the end, the sheriff just regarded this whole spectacle on Dr. Phil as just that, a spectacle for entertainment. So what do you make of the conflicting autopsies? Which experts do you find more credible? Or are both of them flawed? Let's talk about the scene, as described by the medical examiner. He got there at 7.15 p.m. That's almost a good 13 hours after Rebecca was cut down from hanging, but okay, better late than never, I guess. And he left about an hour and a half later. Now remember, Rebecca had been laying out in that yard all day, naked and bound, and she was not covered up, Nobody put a pop-up tent or had done anything to keep people from getting a bird's eye view of Rebecca's body. Helicopters shot footage from above. Neighbors took pictures as well. But whatever. Okay. So the medical examiner observed her laying in the grass, and nearby was a patio table with one broken leg. I mentioned this earlier that this was a table purportedly broken by Adam Shacknai when he stood on it to cut Rebecca down. She still had the rope around her neck, with a piece of blue fabric, apparently a t-shirt, also around the neck, on the outside of the ligature. This t-shirt, according to Adam, was around her head and face, used as a gag, and he pulled it off in order to attempt CPR. Rebecca's hair was between her skin and the rope. Let me stop here for a second because a lot has been made about this fact. I've heard it discussed on numerous occasions that those of us who have long hair, when we put on a shirt or a jacket or a scarf, anything that constricts our hair next to our neck, that it's a knee-jerk reaction to reach back and pull the hair out. I totally get it, I do it too, because it can be uncomfortable, it can be warm, it feels like your hair is slightly being pulled on, it might be itchy, and if for no other reason, it's just a habit. So in looking at the situation with Rebecca, one of two things happened. Either she slipped that rope around her own neck and left her hair under it, or someone slipped that rope around her neck and left her hair under it. That being said, would Rebecca have reached back to pull her hair out of her own noose? Would her mind even have been in a place to think of it? Would it have mattered to her? Does the fact that her hair was under the rope have any bearing on who did this to her, or if it was done to herself? Or is this an irrelevant detail? So back to the scene. There was a small amount of dried blood on Rebecca's inner thigh. I think I've mentioned that she was menstruating at the time of her death. And this had me wondering too about the argument for Rebecca having done this to herself. First of all, is it troubling that Rebecca is naked? Why would a person want to commit suicide without clothes on? Would this be an expression of self humiliation? And furthermore, would she do all this while menstruating? Or would it make more sense that someone interrupted Rebecca in the middle of changing or preparing for a shower and she just happened to be unclad at the moment? Also, on Rebecca's body were some black marks on her left breast and on the right nipple. It was black paint. And we definitely need to talk about this. This paint on her body was the same paint that was used to paint a cryptic message on the door to the bedroom. And those of you who are familiar with this case have seen this message. It was two lines, and there was no punctuation. She saved him, Can you save her? There are two big, huge questions about this message painted on the door. First, what the actual what does this even mean? And two, who wrote it? Handwriting experts can't really give you a definitive answer because the words are written in block letters with paint and a paintbrush. One expert would say, in analyzing samples of both Rebecca's and Adam's handwriting that based on a couple of the letters, namely the A and the M, that it appears more likely to have been written by Adam. But he never looked at anyone else's handwriting who had access to the house. And remember, the paint was found on Rebecca's breast. Experts also couldn't say, that it was probable that Adam wrote the message only that it appeared more likely to be him than Rebecca. So this leaves us with questions. Is handwriting analysis possible to determine who wrote something that is written with a brush and paint? Is it reliable or is it just information that can never really be determined with any degree of certainty? And then What does this message mean? If you look at it one line at a time, she saved him. Who is she? Rebecca? Seems the logical person to assume that's who's being referred to. She. So if Rebecca wrote this message, would she be talking about herself in the third person? If she wrote it, could she be talking about someone else? And she saved him. Is that referring to Max? Remember, Max wasn't dead at this point yet. But she had ostensibly received a voicemail from Jonah that Max was likely going to die. So if she had that information, then she technically didn't save him, right? And what about the can you save her part? Are we still talking about Rebecca? And who is you? And do we assume she painted the message because she has paint on her body? So many questions. What do you make of the message? Let's talk about physical evidence. Rebecca's DNA was found on all the knots of the rope and one of the knives used to cut the rope. The black paint was not only found on her breast, but also on her hands and on the rope. Her fingerprints were found on the tube of paint and two other knives that were nearby as well. Her foot and heel prints were found in the dust on the balcony. There was no other DNA or fingerprints found anywhere at the scene at all. Only Rebecca's. So, this leads us to Adam Shacknye. Not only has he been accused by Rebecca's family of being the one to have murdered Rebecca, a civil jury just found him responsible for it to the tune of $5 million. According to those who feel Adam murdered Rebecca, there are a couple of theories as to motive. One is that there was a sexual aspect to the killing for two reasons. One is that she was found naked. And secondly that it's been reported that Adam had been watching and searching for Asian anime bondage porn in the time surrounding Rebecca's death. So does Adam watching and searching for Asian anime porn seem like a weird thing to do in light of what's going on with his nephew? Does it have anything to do with Rebecca? Maybe he was sexually attracted to her and with no other choices in the matter at the moment, turned to viewing pornographic materials? Would this have led him to attempt a sexual interlude with Rebecca? Maybe she rebuffed his advances and he was angered or insulted by this? And then he beat her about the head four times, rendering her unconscious and staged the whole entire hanging scene, including painting the cryptic message on the door to thwart the investigation, taking off all of her clothing, binding her wrists and ankles, gagging her with a t-shirt, then tossing her over the balcony, all without getting any evidence anywhere at the scene that pointed to him? No DNA on the ropes. Only hers. No fingerprints on the knives or on the paintbrush. Only hers. And no footsteps on the balcony. Only hers. Is it possible to do all of the staging of the scene and leave no forensic evidence behind? Another theory is that Adam did this out of revenge for Max's grave injuries that occurred on Rebecca's watch. Does this seem like a plausible motive for Adam to want to do harm to Rebecca? To avenge Max? In this elaborate manner? All of the staging, the hanging, cryptic message, all the way up to the point that Adam was to be the one to discover Rebecca. He was the one to cut her down, thereby being able to explain, if necessary, why his DNA was on the ropes and on the t-shirt, which, by the way, it wasn't. So, if Adam were the one responsible, he left exactly zero physical evidence of himself there. Is this possible? Or does this mean that there is no physical evidence tying Adam to the scene because he simply isn't responsible for Rebecca's death because he didn't do it? And that brings us to the theories about Rebecca's death being by her own hand. Is it possible for her to have done this to herself? There have been video demonstrations made that show it's possible for the hands to have been bound in front, slipped out of the bindings, and repositioned behind the back. Obviously, if Rebecca did this on her own, then her hands would have had to have been the last thing in place. But does this make sense? Why? Why would Rebecca hang herself? Was she feeling guilty and responsible for Max's fall? Did she get the news of Max's grave condition and decide to take her own life as a result? Would she have staged this elaborate scene? Would she have killed herself without any clothes on? Would she have done so while menstruating? And would she have left her hair under that rope around her neck? Could her state of mind been in a really bad way? Would she have written such a cryptic message? Did she think Jonah and Dina, Max's parents, were going to blame her for Max's impending death? Was she worried about the confrontation she was going to have to have with Max's mom and aunt? Did she kill herself to not have to face them? Then there's a theory that perhaps someone else committed this crime and staged the scene. Is it possible that someone else came into the house and did this to Rebecca? What would be the motive for that? Could Max's family been so angry with Rebecca that they ordered her to be killed in retaliation? There was nobody else at the house that night except for Rebecca and Adam. Everyone else, Jonah, Dina, and Nina, were accounted for on the video surveillance elsewhere at the time Rebecca died could one of them had ordered some kind of hit on Rebecca and did all of this elaborate staging knowing that the work could be done unimpeded because everyone was at the hospital and Adam just had the unfortunate luck of being the only one at home at the time the unfortunate timing of watching Asian anime porn what do you think When all is said and done, there are two most plausible scenarios. Rebecca painted that cryptic final message on the bedroom door. Then, alone in the house, she took off all her clothes, tied one end of the rope to the foot of the bed with the intentions of the other end being a noose. She slipped it over her head and tightened it. Then she bound her ankles together She tied that t-shirt around her face and gagged her mouth. She fashioned the ropes around her wrist in front of herself, slipping one hand out. She made her way over the balcony, placed her hands behind her back, slipping her free hand back through the bindings, feet bound together. She left the foot and heel prints on the balcony, leaned over, and fell nine feet. Her neck didn't break because of the angle she fell and she hung there, likely having lost consciousness in under 30 seconds and eventually died as a result of strangulation. Or, Adam came into the room either to make a sexual advance or to avenge Max's death. He rendered Rebecca unconscious with four blows to the head. He removed her clothing and using a knife, cut the rope into three pieces, one piece he used to bind her ankles, one he used to bind her wrists, and the last and longest piece he attached to the end of the foot of the bed and the other around Rebecca's neck. He gagged her with the t-shirt, and at some point, he painted the cryptic message on the door. He managed to ensure that his DNA was not found on the rope the knife, the paintbrush, or the paint tube, all the while making sure Rebecca's prints and DNA were found all over those very same items. Then he managed to get Rebecca to go over the balcony, also ensuring that he did not get his footprints in the dust out there. So, what do you think? Better yet, let's find out what Justin thinks. I think I've pretty much asked about 500 questions throughout the course of this presentation. And now it's time to see if he can find some answers for us. Justin, it is all yours.
1: I do have to give a huge shout out to MC nation. I love you folks. Uh, Thanks again to Roseanne and her listeners for allowing me to come in on this double crazy, super long episode. It's, Definitely a mind-boggling one for sure. We have two cases basically wrapped up in one episode, and it was definitely a lot of research on both our parts. Um, Roseanne did a phenomenal job on the details and her research, so I can't thank her enough. What I would like to thank her for is the very kind words that she said at the beginning of the episode. Um, I enjoy working with Roseanne a lot. I think both of our styles, uh, although they are different, kind of mesh up pretty well together, and we usually get really good reception from our uh, combined efforts, so I'd like to thank all all her listeners and her as well. And before I get started, I do have to say, everyone is innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. What I'm going to state are facts, evidence, and I'm going to throw around some theories. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. So with that being said, let's go ahead and address the first victim, Max. Now let's look at the murder aspect of it. Now according to the report, he had face, shoulder, and neck injuries that shouldn't have happened uh, according to the way that he fell. Now he fell off a railing, hit a chandelier, hit another railing, and then hit the floor. You know, I don't understand how they can determine this later on that these injuries are not concurrent with a fall when it was never brought up the first time around. That really, really bothers me. I think uh, they are kind of stretching it. I think they're really looking for any kind of reason to blame somebody here. But I will say this. Um, after I've read both accounts that it was a biomechanic expert and a biomotion expert that he did conclude that there was no way Max could have gotten over the railing. So let's say an average six-foot man railings probably going to be to your waist. So let's say three feet. Now, Max was not much taller than three feet. Like, he was three and a half feet, maybe three foot nine inches, I believe. And in order for him to get over that railing, he had to have been propelled somewhat lifted up off the ground. There's no way he's going to be able to be on a Razor scooter, you know, flying down the hallway and hit this railing and just kind of fly over it. I will admit that. That is very, very weird. A couple other little details about that is, you know, he was found with the Razor scooter at, on the floor. He, there is also a ball nearby, and there is a dog that is said to have been involved. Now... According to Rebecca, he whispered the word ocean, which is actually the dog's name. Now, that is only on her account, so we have to take that with a grain of salt. Now, according to her, she was in the shower when she heard the crash. Um, I don't know which shower she was in, but that would be something that I would have to take into account on how much of the truth she was telling. I guess my big question with this would be if Max was not a daredevil. Um, He was said to, when he jumped on a trampoline, uh, he needed somebody to hold his hand. So he's not a big risk-taking kind of child. But you also have to think, he is a six-year-old kid. Sometimes six-year-old kids do... Do pretty stupid things. I can totally attest to this because I'm a father of a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. I have seen some pretty stupid stuff in my day. But my big thing is Xena. Xena was 13 years old at the time and it's not out of the realm of possibility that her and Max would have possibly been playing together. Now, if this was murder, it would, I don't want, I really don't think it was, it was on purpose. I guess you could say, because I, I honestly think if there was something nefarious going on with this, uh, it would have been an accident between the two younger people, uh, Max and Xena playing maybe, uh, maybe she was messing with him, kind of hanging him over the railing a little bit and, you know, lost him. Maybe she was pushing him on the Razor scooter or something like that. I really don't think a 13 year old is going to go to the extent of, placing, you know, objects in the way, you know, like a razor scooter on his leg and a ball nearby, that is really the only thing that I can think of. And you have the biomotion, biomechanic expert, whatever you want to refer to him as, saying that it is physically impossible for him to get over the railing going full on straight, whether it be running or on a razor scooter. I do honestly agree with that. You know, we also have to take into account that, as proposed by the sheriff's department in Max's death, that he was going at a high rate of speed on his Razor scooter and possibly hit the railing and went over. Well, there's carpet. There's very thick carpet on the floor by that railing. So you can't really get to that high rate of speed, let alone that his center of gravity was so low that it technically would have been considered impossible for him to just hit the railing and then go over. Although I do think that this is an accident, I don't think all the details of this accident are accurate. I don't think this real story was told. Um, Now, unfortunately... Every time you go to try to look into Max Shacknai's death, you automatically get led to Rebecca because Rebecca's is so just absolutely crazy that it overshadows Max's death. But, you know, I really don't think that Rebecca is going to, you know, beat him and throw him over the railing. I'm really not seeing any kind of motive for this whatsoever. Uh, Her and Max were said to have had a good relationship. There's no reason to even think that she would have murdered him. The only reason that came up is because of the face, shoulder, neck injuries. That wouldn't be consistent with a fall like that. But in all honesty, if you look at the fall and the recreation of it, it is not out of the realm of possibilities whatsoever. So I know I'm not spending very much time on this particular subject, But I do have to say that if it were me, I would say that this was an accident. I think it was a horrible accident. But I think if anybody would have been involved, it would not have been Rebecca. I think it would have been Zena, And I don't think people have really looked into that aspect of it too much, unfortunately. But like I said, you got to think, you know, you got two younger kids, they could be playing a little bit rough, you know, she could be messing with them a little bit and, you know, a bad accident happened and then Rebecca tried covering up for her little sister, you know, because of the situation at hand, you know, that, like I said, that's just my personal opinion, you know, obviously I'm not right or wrong. Obviously, you know, me and Roseanne definitely want to hear feedback from this. Uh, We'd love to hear your opinions, but I will say with that, we can go ahead and move on to Rebecca's death. First, let's address a couple of questions that we do have. Rebecca's phone received a voicemail at about 12.30 a.m. the night she died, and it was deleted at 12.50 a.m. Her time of death was supposed to be between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. Now, why would rebecca delete this voicemail if she was even the person to delete it now according to jonah he had left the voicemail stating that max was not going to make it now she could have been distraught not wanted to hear that she could have deleted it herself now we're only going on what jonah says here there could have been something more sinister in that voicemail as well and another question that i'm really into is how the authorities were not able to retrieve this voicemail um you know at the time this is 2011 uh it's really kind of unimaginable that they could not bring this up you know and it brings up the simple phrase follow the money well you know, she could have been distraught overhearing that news, deleted it. You would think that if she saw the missed call, she would give a call back, but that did not happen. You know, maybe she was already dead by this time. We do not know. Maybe Adam got the voicemail, listened to it. Maybe he deleted it. You know, we, we really don't know. Maybe it was a third party there that, uh, you know, deleted the message. We have no idea. So, I mean, there's a lot of questions going on with that. And what happened those 20 minutes between receiving that voicemail and deleting it? Was she getting stuff around for her extremely elaborate suicide? Was she in a struggle for her life, possibly? Was she maybe even romantically involved with Adam? You know, the possibilities here are just so endless that it's hard to nail down any safe theory on what is going on another thing that we do need to address is the the knots that were used to tie rebecca up or the knots that she used to tie herself up we have a slip knot which is a fairly simple knot it's not a big deal but the other knot is described as a cleat hitch knot now this is described as a nautical knot and it is possible for her to tie this in front of her and possibly put these behind her her back. But the real question is, would Rebecca have had the knowledge? Now as we know Adam Shacknai was a tugboat captain, so he is extremely familiar with nautical knots, almost to the point where a lot of people think that this is this is no coincidence whatsoever. But a lot of people also forget that Rebecca has spent enough time on boats that there's a good possibility she also knew how to tie this knot herself. Now, whether she could do it in front of her with one hand kind of constricted and then, you know, slip them behind her back, we're not totally sure. Now, one article that I did read stated that her hand when they found her body, which it was stiffened, they said her fingers were stiffened around to where the knot was behind her, you know, suggesting that she was either got done tying it or she was trying to undo the knot as if she was tied up long before she had gotten over the railing. Uh, Again, we're not a 100% sure. So, you know, that's one of those so, you know, that's one of those questions that is very, very lingering. Personally, I will give, you know, my personal opinion on on what I think happened at the end of this. But that is one of those things that, you know, a lot of people forget, I think, is that Rebecca did spend time on boats. So it's not out of the realm of possibility to think that she did have this knowledge as well. Another thing that we do have to address is when Rebecca went over the balcony, The bed that the rope was tied to, it only shifted about 7.5 inches should it have moved more as a result of the force of her drop from 9 feet. Now, it's definitely not out of the realm of possibility that since the railing was up a little bit higher than where it was tied to, that the jerk would have lifted that bed off the ground, therefore you know, there being no drag marks from when the bed did move. Personally, uh, you know, with a bed of this weight, I really find that hard to believe there being no drag marks whatsoever. Now, since the bed only jerked in one direction, you know, this could possibly be a sign of a staged crime scene, you know, a staged suicide scene. Uh, we will touch on that a little bit more in the theories when we get to those, uh, when we talk about the differences between murder and between suicide, you know, but this is something that is is very key to this investigation. They looked at this very, very closely, and we will touch a little bit more on that when we get into the theories. Another huge question is Rebecca's neck. Her neck was not broken. There were no dislocated or separated vertebrae in her neck whatsoever. Now, usually in a hanging, you're going to have separation between the C2 and the C3 of the neck. Now, she was a 100 pounds. She dropped 9 feet. Now, you would think that this would easily snap somebody's neck, but there were only injuries to the one side of her neck. Now, in a couple of case studies of victims that had died by hanging um in one instance a man of 200 pounds fell seven feet and he was completely decapitated now this would suggest that rebecca either either went forward over the railing uh that that would explain how her neck was not broken because if she did go forward um i mean she was bound you know be hands behind her back her feet together that she would have not been able to grasp the railing to jump over she would have had to go almost head first there's no other option or she was either thrown um now there were no other prints on the balcony no other footprints or anything like that but they did a study and it is possible to throw a person who weighed more than her they used a 120 pound dummy that was restrained the same way as her, and they were able to throw them headfirst over the railing without setting foot on that balcony. So, that is a very interesting little fact. Now, if she would have gone over headfirst, then that would have kind of dulled the impact of the rope. And when I say dulled, I mean there wouldn't have been such a fierce snagging reaction. Um, it would have snagged a little bit, and this could possibly explain why there were only injuries to the side of her neck. And that could have possibly caused her body to kind of sway to the left or to the right, depending on which direction the knot was tied. So, you know, that is something that we have to keep in mind as well. It's, it's extremely odd, but I will say this. From a height like that, if you jump feet first, it is impossible. And I consulted doctors on this. It is impossible for your neck not to break. I will say that. Now, the different accounts of mud being on her feet a lot of people say that you know this was from the balcony the balcony does not have a lot of dirt It has a little bit of dirt but if you go by some accounts that say that her feet were caked with mud you know that kind of discredits the other accounts so it's really hard to determine uh what actually is true and what actually is going on here unfortunately Now, there's two scenarios. She could have been running for her life through the courtyard uh, while being chased by Adam, or possibly even um, Nina, who was uh, Dina's twin sister. We're not exactly sure of that. Now, Dina and Nina, uh, the twin sisters, they had solid airtight alibis, supposedly. Um, I don't know how much stock I put in that, depending on who was the person who said, yeah, they were here. I would love to know who I would love to know who said, or who were the person that confirmed their whereabouts. I would really like to know that. So it's, it's hard to put a lot of that into perspective. So, I mean, it's a very important detail, but the varying accounts and, you know, some people saying that her feet got dirty while she was rummaging around, getting the rope, getting the knives, um, You know, and all that stuff that her feet were dirty, but at the same time, it was reported that Rebecca had gotten out of the shower not long before this supposed incident, and that's proven by uh, drops of menstrual blood. There was one in the bathroom, and there were four drops in front of the bedroom door on the inside uh, of the bedroom as it would look like she had opened the door and was standing there for uh, possibly a small amount of time either in a confrontation or painting a message on the door we really don't know all right the next thing we are going to touch on is the the two autopsies all right now the first one concluded that this was suicide i'm not 100% confident in that ruling, given the fact that the way that she was bound, uh, that it, it really doesn't make any sense. I don't think they put a lot of effort into this investigation, along with the fact that it took 13 hours for the medical examiner to show up on the scene. And that doesn't even account for the fact that when you saw a woman bound like this, whether she was hanging or not, Uh, Adam Sheknyan is called and 911 automatically assumes that it was suicide. And it was stated by police that when they first arrived on the scene, they did not think that it was suicide. They initially thought that it was murder, that somebody had killed her, because of the way that she was bound and gagged. So, I mean, you have a lot of weird little details in there. there. You also have to take into account... You know, the, the second autopsy. The Zahao family, um, they did hire Dr. Cyril Weck. Now, Cyril Weck is a very renowned pathologist. He has worked on several famous cases. Um, the ones that Roseanne stated along with Kurt Cobain as well. And, He also gave the ruling in Kurt Cobain's death that it could not have been suicide. Now, obviously, there are still arguments going back and forth to this day on the details of that death, let alone the details of Rebecca Zahau's death. But like I had stated a little bit earlier, what he found was there were no cervical vertebrae fractured or dislocated None separated from one another, or even from the base of the skull for that matter. Now in a fall from nine feet, a hundred pound person, there would have been. It is physically impossible for that not to happen. Now what they also did find was the injuries on the top of her head. Now I've heard on the top and I've also heard on the side. Dr. Cyril Wecht himself said that they were four separate blunt injuries that did not break the skin but they caused bleeding underneath the skin on the top of her skull. Now, he concluded that these were possibly from getting hit over the head with something uh, that was blunt, either causing her to have a concussion or knocking her unconscious, which would help support the murder theory. So, you know, you got to take that into account as well. Now, the San Diego medical examiner in his first autopsy said that she quote, may have struck skull on the balcony on the way down. Listen, when you're a medical examiner and you have something to where you literally have to say she may have, I'm sorry, but that is questionable in its own right right there. I want you to be 100% sure, and if you're not, don't rule it a suicide. Rule it undetermined. The reason that the Zahaw family did hire this pathologist and had the body exhumed four months later from Missouri was not because they thought it was murder. I mean, granted, they do think it's murder, but they were just pushing to have the cause of death changed from suicide to undetermined, which still hasn't happened. There is enough evidence here to easily change that cause of death. And I really don't understand what they did, why they didn't. Now, the sheriff who originally was involved in the investigation goes on to say that, you know, those findings were not shared with him. Well, in a lot of my research, here's, here's how this happens. After your burial, the body belongs to the law. It does not belong to the family. It does not belong to friends. It belongs to the law. So when you want a body exhumed, You have to go to a judge and you have to provide proof and you have to convince a judge that there's enough evidence that the cause of death was possibly wrong to where they're going to grant you the permission to have the body exhumed. Now I would really like to know if the case was still open or closed because that would determine a lot. Now, because Rebecca was not buried in California, she was buried in Missouri, that does play a factor as well, because if she would have been buried in California and the case was still open, then she would have had to had some kind of approval by the sheriff's department to go to this judge to have the body exhumed, and if not they would have been able to contest it, and they still would have been able to contest it either way, but it was not contested. Now, I'm not 100% sure. This is not 100% confirmed, but it is up to the judge in the county in which she is buried. She was buried in St. Joseph, Missouri, so it would be up to him, and obviously there was enough proof that this death was questionable that a judge did allow the body to be exhumed, and that right there should say, you know, quite a bit. There were 13 samples taken from fingernail clippings of Rebecca Zahau. The sheriff goes on to say that, oh, that doesn't mean anything because, you know, somebody breathing on your hand can leave DNA. Okay. Uh, That's totally understandable, but I want to know how long were her fingernails, because if her fingernails were short enough, that's not totally a possibility. If her fingernails were longer, yeah, it is a possibility, but when it comes down to it, 12 of these samples were one person. That was Rebecca. Now, the other one sample was tested, and there were at least two types of DNA found on it. Now, why this is important is because they could not get results off of that one other sample that was not Rebecca's DNA. Now, these could be defensive if the fingernails were short enough or if they are long enough. Yeah, possibly could. Now, if the fingernails were long enough, yeah, it could be transferred very easily. But at the same time, we have to lean more towards contamin- possible contamination for them not being able to find a source for this other confirmed set of DNA that was underneath her fingernails. Now, there's a lot of factors involved, okay? Contamination, you have the fact that her body was left uncovered in the elements uh, for quite a long time. You know what I'm saying? You had 13 hours before the medical examiners even got there. What in the hell was going on? the fire department or the first responders to the scene were there within a few minutes. So, I mean that amazing job on their behalf, but if they were there so quick, what took the medical examiner 13 hours to get there? That is seriously weird. And I'm, I'm going to say another thing here to what the sheriff says about the DNA. Okay. So you're going to sit here and tell me that somebody can breathe on a fingernail and leave a trace of DNA. But when it comes down to a crime scene, you're telling me that a man who admittedly took a gag off of her mouth and cut her down left absolutely no trace of DNA anywhere, and that includes in the room. Because the reason that that is so weird is because not even Rebecca's DNA was in the room, on the tube of paint, on the paintbrush. There was no sign of her DNA anywhere. You don't find that odd, Sheriff? You know, you're sitting here saying that, oh, well, it's easy to transfer DNA. All you have to do is breathe on somebody's hand and bam, there's DNA. Okay, so where's all the DNA at when it comes to the crime scene? What, uh, what happened to it? The knife that she supposedly cut the rope with? There's no DNA on the handle. There's only DNA and her fingerprints on the blade of the knife. Now, how does that make sense? It doesn't. And another thing that really bothered me about some of the sheriff's comments about the family going on Dr. Phil. Okay. Now, yeah, he is an entertainment psychologist, and I'm just, I'm going to tell you right now, not a huge fan. Okay. I think this guy truly does exploit families uh, for ratings. And then he just moves on to the next episode. I don't think he really cares. But it's not Dr. Phil that sought out this case. It is the family members that is that thought your ruling was wrong. That thought the original autopsy was wrong. It was the family members that hired Cyril Wecht. It was the family members that lawyered up. It was the family members that chose to go on Dr. Phil to bring this case to the world because they didn't think you did a good enough job. And to be honest with you, I agree with them. Because if you get down to the brass tacks of this crime scene, it is literally the cleanest crime scene in the history of crimes. Alright? So don't sit here and bash Dr. Phil and bash Cyril Wecht and bash the family members by saying, you know, oh, you're just, you know, you're playing on their on their feelings. You know, this is, uh, you know, you're hurting their feelings. All you're doing is is dragging them through the mud and all this other, you know, total crap when you didn't even have the decency to cover up this woman's body. You left it uncovered for helicopters to go through and take pictures. You had neighbors going through taking pictures. So don't sit here and tell me you feel for the family and you care about their feelings when you can let this happen. But yet, you get all all angry when the family doesn't trust your results and goes to national television and hires a separate pathologist. Now, whether the case was closed or open, and depending on the state and the judge, Cyril Weck didn't have to share any results with you. He is an independent pathologist. He was hired independently by the family. Sorry, I had to just get that little rant out of the way. That is one thing that has bothered me so much about researching this case. Is the sheriff's department saying, Oh, go on, Dr. Phil, and this you're just dragging this family. You're hurting them more by dragging it out. No, no. It was the family who made these decisions. All right. Not Dr. Phil. So, there's that, okay? And then on top of that, we also have the fact that there was tape residue found on both of her shins, suggesting that she was taped before possibly having her legs tied together with that rope. We also have to take into account that in the police report, it said that there were no signs of a struggle. This is not true. There was a chair knocked over in that bedroom. How is that not a sign of a struggle? You know, another little thing that we do have to touch on is the rope around her neck and the fact that her hair was not pulled out of the rope. Um, Roseanne did point out, you know, a lot of women, they put on a coat, um, they put on a scarf, they put on a necklace. The first thing they do is they flip their hair out. Over to where it's, uh you know, touching their, you know, their hair is out on the outside of it. And that was one thing that Rebecca's body did not show. Uh, it showed that her hair was still up against her neck and the rope was on the, uh, you know, the rope was on the outside with her hair touching the back of her neck. You know, I really can't speak about this. But from what I have seen in my lifetime, yeah, it's it's almost like a natural reflex for a woman to do that with longer hair. So I do find that very, very odd. And it makes me question whether or not she put that rope around her neck herself. But, you know, maybe that's a small detail that's not that important. Maybe it's a huge detail, but we're not sure. So, I mean, there is that little fact right there. It's kind of odd. Another thing would be, you know, Rebecca, would she commit suicide naked while menstruating? Why would she be naked? She had just gotten out of the shower. Yeah, granted. Okay. Was she humiliating herself? You know, we can't really say what. I mean, obviously, she was in a state of trauma. Okay. Um, if it was suicide, I really don't see her going to the extent of staging this huge, elaborate scene and, you know, being naked, I just, I find it so hard to believe I could honestly see her being surprised by an attacker or a knock at the door while she was, you know, getting out of the shower, taking a shower, um, you know, any one of those scenarios, I could definitely see that being more of a possibility than her stripping down naked and committing suicide in this huge elaborate fashion, but... You know, we'll talk a little bit more about this in the theories, but it's it's really hard to say. It really is. She was a very, her family was very religious. They were Christian, you know, so you have to put that into account, especially with the suicide factor. So, I mean, that's that's kind of give and take. It's kind of weird. As for doing it while menstruating, um, I can understand how that could possibly affect her hormones a little bit, uh, maybe make her a little bit more emotional, but for that as an aspect to her being actually naked or, you know, being that being part of the scenario, you know, I'm not 100% confident that that played a factor. Now we jump on to the message on the door, which says, she saved him. Can you save her? According to the <laughs> Sheriff's Department of San Diego County, she wrote this herself because she had paint on her body And she was extremely artistic. Okay, I get that. Then why is there absolutely no DNA on the tube of paint or on the paintbrush? They did handwriting analysis. They said that the handwriting more than likely matched Adam's handwriting more than Rebecca's. So, is that analysis right? And also, why, if Rebecca did it, would she be speaking in the third person? It brings up the question of who is she, you know, who is this person talking about if Rebecca didn't write that, you know, it makes me beg the question. Maybe there was a third party present who wrote that message. Maybe, you know, Nina was there because she admittedly was. Maybe Nina wrote this message. Maybe she was a part of it. You know, that brings up a lot of questions for me because the message does not make sense are is this person talking about Rebecca? Are they talking about somebody else? Why would Rebecca go out of her way to write this cryptic message? Uh And why would she speak in the third person while doing it? You know, she saved him. Were you talking about Rebecca saving Max? Because, you know, they did initially believe that she had saved his life. But then they later found out that he would not be going to recover from his injuries. So... You know, it brings up another question. You know, her mental state. Uh, You know, she was known to act impulsively. She did very well for herself when she, even before she was with Jonah, you know, she had her own career. She had a great job, but yet she still stole a $1,000 worth of jewelry from Macy's. You know, why? Why would she do that? She's acting impulsively. Maybe she was out of her head. Maybe she had some kind of psychological breakdown after receiving, uh, you know, the voicemail, you know, hence that she deleted it, you know, kind of a out of sight, out of mind type thing. You know, that, that does bring up a lot of questions. And, uh, to me personally, that is probably one of the weirder things aside from the fact that there was absolutely no DNA in this room along with Adam admittedly taking the gag out of her mouth, and cutting her down, but yet there's no DNA anywhere. You know, that suggests to me that this crime scene was wiped clean, you know? So, I mean, we'll touch a little bit more on that here a little bit later, but... But yeah, the cryptic message is probably one of the things that bothers me the most. It makes absolutely no sense, but it does make sense if it was written by a third party or by Adam, if he was speaking to somebody else, you know, in this cryptic message. Moving forward, let's talk about Adam Shackney watching Asian Bondage anime porn during the time Rebecca supposedly would have died. You know, you can look at this several ways. Maybe this was a fetish that he had. Maybe he was getting ideas on how to tie somebody up to make it look like a suicide. Maybe he was attracted to Rebecca and he had been into this fetish for a while and he approached her about possibly sleeping together and, you know, she turned him down. He got mad. You know, there are a lot of spec there. Now there is a lot of speculation about there being a sexual assault involved, Um, That is unconfirmed from my understanding. We're not 100% sure if that happened, but it is suggested that one of the knives was possibly in her vaginal region because of the blood totally surrounding the knife and not being on both sides like how a hand would grip it, you know, and that also brings up another question. Why were there two knives? Um, A lot of theories in that are that she had grabbed a knife during the struggle and was trying to defend herself. Um, The fingerprints on the knife were only on the blade of the big knife, and those were Rebecca's fingerprints. Uh, the, The handles of the knives, there was no fingerprints. There was no DNA. So, you know, what's going on there? Do I find it personally weird that the timing of the... You know, Asian bondage anime porn in the time that Rebecca is supposedly either committing suicide or possibly getting murdered. Yeah, Um, you know, one, two coincidence, you know, I can see happening Uh, when you get to like three, four and five. There's definitely something going on here, you know, and then that would bring in, you know, the fact that Adam Shacknai maybe he murdered her in retaliation for Max dying. Supposedly, I've read in a couple of places that Adam and Jonah were not actually very close. Um, and that Adam actually made it a point to not go to family functions, to not visit. Now, I don't know if this was because there, you know, were disagreements between the family. You know, they were on two different social statuses. You know, they were on two different, <laughs> you know, social levels. You have Jonah, who's an elite millionaire, possibly billionaire. And then you have Adam, who's a tugboat captain. Um, so if something happened to Max, you know, if Adam's not even involved with the family at all, why would he be flown in? Or why would he fly in? And why would he stay at the guest house and not be at the hospital visiting Max? Um, there is a really strange theory about this, and we will get into that later, but that is one thing that that really bothered me, because if that is true, then, you know, that would shed a lot of light on the situation, on whether or not him and Adam were actually very close, and whether or not he was even very close with Max at all. You could see this being a definite possibility. It's very easy to imagine this, and this is obviously one of the most popular theories out there. And with that, Let's jump into some theories. Now, some of these are kind of little tidbits that I picked up. Some of them are more popular than others. I'm going to try to go with probably the least plausible to the most plausible. And the first one being that Jonah Shacknai hired a third party to kill Rebecca and then invited his brother to stay To kind of pin it on him because they did not get along and he really didn't care about Adam that much. Is that a possibility? You know what? Follow the money. It is definitely a possibility. This room was wiped clean. No DNA evidence whatsoever. It took 13 hours for medical examiners to show up. That is Pretty much unheard of. This is literally the cleanest crime scene you will ever see. And that also includes the fact that Adam admittedly cut her down. Admittedly took the gag out of her mouth. Yet, there's no DNA evidence of him or her for that matter. Even being in the bedroom. There's no footprints on the balcony besides one of her footprints. And it kind of shows her toes a little bit. But that's about it. But they did prove that a person of Adam's size could take a 120-pound person and force them head first over the balcony without touching that balcony uh, floor. So, I mean, that does, you know, kind of make sense. Going on the third party being involved, that would explain the entire scene being wiped clean if it was a professional. So... Even though it's not that plausible of a theory, it's still plausible. It's still not out of the realm of possibilities. It's very easy to believe, judging on the crime scene, the lack of evidence, the timing. And if it is true that Adam and Jonah were not close, you know, this kind of would make sense. Especially maybe even if Nina was involved. You know, we do not know. The next theory. Um, And these two are... You know, right, right with each other. They're not more plausible or less plausible than either one. But let's go ahead and talk about the suicide theory. Was Rebecca distraught over what happened to Max? I mean, it was pretty obvious. Um, when she even, you know, picked up Nina from the airport, Nina was badgering her so bad about more details about what happened. You know, Dina was badgering her so much about what happened. Now, when she gets a voicemail finding out that Max was not going to recover from his injuries, this could have possibly sent her over the edge. I'm no psychologist, but it might have even caused some kind of psychological break. Now, Rebecca being a Christian, she would not want to shame her family with a suicide. She would not want it to look like a suicide. So there is one theory out there that she committed suicide, but she made it look like a murder to kind of save face for her family and herself, which in all honesty, it it makes sense. It really, really does. There were there was paint on her, which would suggest, you know, that she did write the message. She possibly had knowledge on nautical knots, you know, which would explain, yeah, you know, possibly she did know how to tie this knot. You know, could she live with knowing that either her or her sister were possibly partly responsible for Max's death? I mean, she knew that she would never hear the end of it if Max would not recover. She would go to court, go to a civil court for wrongful death. You know what I'm saying? Just like, you know, Adam has just recently dealt with, you know, you, you can see that. You can, you can totally see that. Was she totally ashamed about what she did? Did she, you know, create this huge, elaborate, just absolutely crazy crime scene and then wipe it all clean and then commit suicide? You know, it's a possibility. And maybe she made it look like a crime scene, possibly, to save herself and save her family from the shame of it being a suicide. You know, that's definitely a possibility. Uh, Then we have to look at, you know, the percentages of women who commit suicide by hanging. So roughly 62% of females who are successful in suicide have previously tried it. So we have to take that into account as well but on average roughly 25 percent of female suicides are by hanging now are we going to lower this percentage because of all the elaborate details involved no i think it's kind of safe to say that one in four do commit suicide by hanging and a lot of that is unfortunately vanity You won't see a lot of suicides in females by hanging or firearms because of the fact that they want to look good uh, in a coffin. And I'm not, you know, saying that to offend anybody, but that's straight up fact. You can look up the statistics, okay? So you have to take that into account as well. Now we have to look at the murder aspect of this. Let's say Adam strangles her. That would explain no neck break. That would explain injuries just to the side of the neck. Let's say she was already either unconscious or had a concussion while he did this. That would explain her hair being inside the rope and not on the outside. That would explain the four hits of blunt force trauma on the top of her skull and the fact that even if her, even if he did throw her body over, the balcony he could possibly have done it without setting one single step on the balcony porch and he would have had to push her body overhead first now this obviously would kind of be like a swan dive type deal the the rope would catch and it would swing her body side to side which would not cause a neck break so that does make sense Now, the fact that it took 13 hours for medical examiners to show up, that is a huge deal for me. I don't understand that part. I really don't understand how the crime scene was absolutely magnificent, cleaned of DNA. Literally, the tube of paint, the paintbrush that she supposedly wrote these cryptic messages on had not even her DNA on them. Or, you know, quite possibly, maybe she did write that cryptic note on the door. But maybe she didn't do it willingly. Maybe she did it against her will. Because I'll tell you this. It's amazing what you will do that you don't want to do when there's a gun pointed to your head. Or a knife pointed to your back or to your throat. You know, that's another question that we have to throw in there as well. There were two knives found on the scene. One of them had Rebecca's fingerprints, but they were only on the blade, and that includes her thumb as well, was on the other side of the blade. Could she possibly have been bound and woke up and tried to escape, get a knife, tried to cut her way out of the ropes? It makes total sense to me personally. Like I said, follow the money. Is there a means, motive, and opportunity? Oh yeah, there are all three of these right there blatantly obvious in this very suspicious death and you know my personal opinion i gotta say if i had to go for anything it would be a definite murder it would be a homicide if not undetermined at the very least but i can tell you right now i would not be writing suicide on this death certificate, especially when you have witnesses that, you know, that heard a female call for help. They say that, oh, well, we thought it was kids in that area just messing around. You know what? Maybe it was Zena who found her body. Maybe it was Nina. Maybe she was involved. Maybe, just maybe, this might just sound crazy, but maybe Rebecca was calling for help. I know, I know it sounds crazy, but if you look at all the tiny little details in this case, it makes perfect sense. Now, if you know, Adam recently was found liable for her death uh, in a civil trial. How the burdens of proof work are, in order to get a murder conviction, you have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That requires the elimination, literally, of every single reasonable doubt. All right? The next one down on the pyramid would be clear and convincing evidence, which is the firm belief of a conviction. Next one down would be preponderance, and that would be, you know, more than likely, you know, there's not enough proof to be able to prove this. Next one down is probable cause. You know, this would say that the facts and circumstances uh, lead an ordinary person to believe, that this person did commit the crime in order to be found responsible for somebody's death in a civil suit, you have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable suspicion. And what that means is there are specific and articulable facts that can prove that this person was responsible for this other person's death, but there is enough counter evidence to not be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this person actually committed this crime. So that's pretty much where we stand on the case today, unfortunately. You know, keep following this one in the news. I believe uh, Shaq and I had to pay Rebecca house family $5 million. And, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that they, they just wanted the money, blah, blah, blah. To be honest with you, no, they didn't. That amount was decided by a judge. It was not decided by the Zahao family. Um, Obviously, Shaq Nye is going to go through the appeal process, but you never know. We're going to wait and see uh, what happens. We're going to find out, obviously, sooner than later. So with all that behind me, I personally, you know, I'm not a detective. I'm not a forensic psychologist, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not anything like that. I'm literally a guy behind a microphone that looks at weird stuff all day. And if it were me, you have to let the evidence sway your opinion. You cannot go into something like this with an opinion. And if you are looking at the evidence, or lack of evidence for that matter, especially since this crime scene is almost too clean to be coincidental, I'm going to have to lean more towards murder, whether it was Adam, somebody else. I honestly do not believe that Rebecca killed herself, and um, that's pretty much where I stand on that. So that's really all I got for you guys. I tried to do it in a timely fashion. I'd like to thank Roseanne again for having me on the show. I hope I did okay in everybody's eyes. Thank you again. Mm -hmm.